We met here for the purpose of worship, and certainly worship consists of a lot of things, not the least of which is prayer, Uh, but we certainly need to pray for our country. As you know, we have a lot of problems, but then God has a lot of solutions, so it's up to Him to select which one it is and when He implements it, so our job is to take it to Him and leave it, and that's what we're going to hopefully do this morning, so... We'll have a moment of silent prayer and then I will, I will close. So if you will, Tom. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of being able to come and live in this great country of ours and to worship. Guide us now and direct us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, Ken, how about a song, please? Hymn number 137. Let's stand and sing all three verses.
Thank you, Kenneth. Uh, now it's time for announcements. I plan on having prayer meeting Wednesday. Uh, it will be at uh, 7 o'clock, 6.30 prayer meeting, 7 o'clock Bible study. We will be in the book of John continuing. Uh, we are, uh, I guess by then, no, Emily won't be there yet. Emily's coming on, uh, I think the 2nd of April. And, uh, we'll, uh, look forward to seeing her, so be sure and pray for her traveling grace. Uh, but, uh, announcements again. We will have prayer meeting and, uh, we will have our Bible study. All right, come if you choose. All right, now, Kenneth, how about another song? Hymn number 140, let's stand and sing all three verses. announcements. We congratulate Ken and Carol, particularly Carol, for the 57th wedding anniversary that she was able to make it. Uh, but uh, we're uh, glad you did. Alright, with that said, let's go to another aspect of worship called giving. Um, we do. I'm not going to put the chart on the board again because you've seen it so many times, but I do love the summary that is presented in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 12 and 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7. Two wonderful chapters, if you will, on New Testament giving, which is uh, often uh, abused in the local church for various reasons, like, for example, tithing, like, for example, uh, bribing God, like, for example, uh, Subscribing to the budget, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and it takes it out of the realm of, a, of a, a, an aspect of worship when that is done. So uh, keep that in mind. Listen up and uh, act accordingly in your mind. As we note, I'm going to read Second Corinthians eight twelve. Actually, by now I ought to know it, right? For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. And uh, that means if you want to give, you can give in the privacy of your mind when we have a moment of silent prayer. But in the event you have something to give, then we need to 
shift gears and go to 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Every man according as he purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly, because God loves the cheerful giver. Love up a cheerful giver. So if you can't be a cheerful giver, then you ought not, uh, uh, you, you ought not give. All right. In other words, you should keep it. <laughs> All right. With that said, now, uh, we're going to have actually two small lessons today. Uh, but we're all going to cover up the entire time period. Uh, I don't, uh, I, I don't know where Kimberly, by the way, and family are, but I do know Don and Dolly are okay. I talked to Dolly last night. Uh, no, I guess it was last night or could be night before I lost a lot of time with these dang shingles. But, uh, as they say, the judges told me, that when he had them, they told him that it was the next thing to childbirth, the pain. And of course, that's, uh, first two days. The rest of the days are okay, but, uh, not okay, but it's far less pain after that. So there's nothing you can really do about it except get a shot. So I would recommend you get a shot, you know. But, uh, that's what happens when you, when you, when you're a bad boy and God calls up, calls you, starts calling his tickets in on you, you know. So, uh, I have checked myself out regularly and I have been confessing. But, uh, uh, it's just one of those things that happen. For whom the Lord loveth, of course, he does take care of. And he does love each and every one of us because of what he did on the cross and, uh, Today is Palm Sunday, and we often think of Palm Sunday as a, as a, oh, a happy time. And uh, it, knowing the Lord limiting Himself like He did, in other words, He limited His deity, and He took upon Himself, of course, the limitations of humanity, and one of those would have been, I suspect, omniscience. So when he came and entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and a number of people came. Now keep in mind, not a lot of people, but a number of people came. I'm sure it brought joy in his heart. And he probably thought, well, you know, there's more of this to come, you know. Why? Because he's accepting the limitations of his deity and... uh uh, and that would be the, the normal thing if you think about it. In other words, he came to planet Earth and he rejected his deity and he accepted the limitations of his of humanity. Uh, but soon after that, very soon after that, he found out that it's that's not the way it's going to be. It's not a happy time. So we sometimes think of Palm Sunday, it was a great time, they laid the palms in front of the Lord, and the Lord came in on his little donkey, you know, and uh, glory, 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 you know. When in actuality, that was for a very, very short time, and then the worst week anybody ever had any time took place. And that was the Passion, Passion Week, and the first day of the Passion Week was Palm Sunday. So immediately, uh, things begin, as we say, go south from there, uh, big time south. And uh, he was, of course, uh, ultimately, as you know, he went to the cross, took care of the sins of the world, buried and resurrected, and that'll be Easter, which is next Sunday. But this book here shows the picture uh, of Christ on the cross and the three people on the cross to bring us maybe a, a little startling revelation that Palm Sunday began a horrible week for our Lord. And uh, why did He do it? Because He loved us and gave Himself for us in order that we may be members of God's forever family. And that's what we have to keep in mind at all times. Now let's go to the Lord in prayer. Do you think about... Well, first John 1 9, make utilization. And then, uh, I'll continue with a very short lesson in, on Palm Sunday. And then we'll ultimately get back to Paul. Let us pray.
Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to come together and to worship. Guide us now and direct us as we do want to recognize that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, in order that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. For I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Palm Sunday summary or introduction, you call it what you may. But today is Palm Sunday, the first day of what we call Passion Week and a day when one of the world's most extraordinary prophecies was fulfilled. Palm Sunday was designed to be the greatest of all Jewish celebrations. It was the day Christ offered Israel their promised kingdom. In other words, I'm coming and I'm offering my kingdom. In other words, uh, he came into his own, but his own received him not. But as many as received him to them, gave him power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on his name. So he came and he, uh, came and he offered the kingdom. And of course, they rejected it. And the rejection, of course, resulted ultimately in the great gift that we receive which was salvation because of what He did on the cross and uh, what God the Father and God the Holy Spirit did for Him by raising Him uh, triumphantly so that we may have eternal life. So the day on which Israel was to have crowned Christ as their King had become the first day of the seven-day Passion Week. It is the day our Savior entered Jerusalem to begin His week of horrors and our week of victory, Israel's rejection of Christ's offering would result in a major, major sea change for his promised people. All right, and no longer, of course, would he be the one who would be offering the kingdom to Israel, but he's going to be the one who, of course, uh, will wait all the way until the rapture of the church has occurred. And after the rapture of the church, then he will present uh, Israel the kingdom. Uh, and you may say, well, why? He gave an answer to that. And I like that answer so well. He said, because I said I would. You know. In other words, uh, I said I'd do it and I did it. And I, and that will come later, of course. Certainly after the rapture of the church. But enough of that. You know about our dispensation chart. So early on in our Lord's ministry, Christ provided numerous evidences that the kingdom had come. Uh, Certainly the kingdom offered by our Lord and the Savior during the Passion Week was an offering to Israel of an earthly kingdom had they accepted it. But they didn't, they rejected it. And uh, therefore there are many ramifications to that. And I have put on the board, I have put on the board, excuse me, I put on the internet and uh, we'll soon be putting into podcast the land of Israel and it'll tell you a lot about Israel. And uh, how Israel got the land back, how they bought it back, who bought it back, when they bought it back, who lived there before, who didn't live there before, what did Mark Twain have to say about it, etc., etc., etc. It's an excellent doctrine. And uh, if you want to know all that, because most people think, oh, they stole it from the Palestinians. Well, the Palestinians never lived there. They lived in Gaza, they lived in Tunisia, and in one other place, uh, Jordan. But... uh as Mark Twain said, there was nothing there when I went by there but rattlesnakes and cacti. I've never seen a place so barren in my life. There's nothing there. And, uh, and Jew, various Jewish people who were absent landowners began to purchase the land, purchase the land, purchase the land from absent land owners. And, uh, uh, then they begin to come back, as you know, in small numbers. And ever since then, uh, there's been the cry on the part of uh, many Arab nations uh, that uh, we don't recognize you. Get out of our land. Well, you left it. Of course, Israel was forced out of it. You remember. They, 70 A.D., God said, get out of there. You know, Uh You've been messing around in Jerusalem with the law, the law, the law, going into the temple, doing your little dances and da 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 you know, all that stuff. 
Stop it, stop it, stop it. And of course they wouldn't. They wouldn't. They wouldn't get into the grace matters found in the Holy Scriptures and as announced by the many apostles who were taking the gospel to them. So he said, uh, all right, I've done all I can do for you. So look out. Here they come. And here came the Romans. Here came the Romans. Why, here they come now with their big armies, you know. And they did indeed sweep in there and they destroyed and they ran them out and no Jews came back into that land for 25 years as they were dispersed all over. And they became a mixture of people and no longer the promised people. And they're not the promised people now that's there. The promised people will come back after, again, the rapture of the church and Christ returns. So that's all in those, that's those, that, that doctrine. So, some of it. But, uh, we'll be getting to that and I might even do a lesson from up here. I don't know. But I certainly will do it, uh, on the internet and on the podcast. And people need to know that. So many people don't. I talk to so many people. They have no idea about that. And the first thing they say, well, the Jews stole it from the Palestinians. You know. And nothing historically could be from the truth. Nothing more than just an outright lie. And then some will say actually that uh, they're uh, the promised people and it's very, I, there's a book out, new book out. That's kind of what turned me on. It says, uh, what would happen if Israel attacked the United States? And I think the answer to that is obvious. We would annihilate them. Why? Because our relations to, with Israel is based upon not Genesis 12, 3, 1, 2, and 3, but it's based on the fact they're a marvelous ally of America. In fact, they're probably the only ally we could count on, you know, if we did have to fight somebody. So they're a wonderful ally, and that's why we should take care of them. They'll be the promised people someday, certainly, but that'll come at the second advent. And uh, we have all that in a doctrine called the advantage of being a Jew. But again, it's on the Internet, and it takes a little effort. You have to sit down, you have to turn on the computer, and you have to study. And that's, uh, of course... My job is just to put it out, just to put it out, and we are getting it out, and we're so grateful for David Hammond and uh, coming up with the podcast and a website uh, so that people can see it when they want it. And, of course, for you wonderful people that are sitting there having to listen to this, but uh, uh, God, of course, uh, is in charge of the whole thing, and uh, you get what he's going to give you, including singles, and you uh, uh, get the blessings and you get, of course, the the pain and suffering. Because remember, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. And it's all for our benefit. All right, early in our, I'm going to read again. Early in our Lord's ministry, Christ provided numerous evidences that the kingdom of God had come. The kingdom offered by Christ during the Passion Week was an offering to Israel of an earthly kingdom. If they would do this and if they would do that, but they didn't do this and they didn't do that. And so God said, okay, you're going to have to wait till later. You're going to have to wait till later and you're going to get a lot of suffering in between. All right, uh, I'm going to read you John 1, 11 and 12. I think I quoted it, but let me read it. It's in the lesson plan. It said, he came unto his own. Who is that? Israel. And his own received him not, but as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Alright, for example, again in Matthew twelve twenty-eight, we have, uh, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. So uh, Jesus said in Matthew twelve twenty-eight that his ability to cast out demons from was in fact prima facie evidence that the kingdom had come. And he had offered it. And they rejected it. Yes, sadly they rejected it. Sadly, Israel's rejection of Christ's offering changed the age of the kingdom from one of immediate promise to one of separation and connection. The kingdom of Christ became that which was separated 
or that which separated Israel and the church, while at the same time uh, connecting Israel with the church. And you can see that in a little thought there. shows you how true that is. Certainly as our salvation connects us with Israel, because so many promises about salvation and uh, what's going to happen in the future. And then, of course, it also involves in several prophecies about the resurrection. Isaiah is full of them. That's why Jewish uh, priests say you're not authorized. You should not read Isaiah. Because Isaiah says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid upon him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. The iniquity of us all. And his word shall not return unto him void, but shall accomplish that which he pleases and prosper in the thing whereunto he has sent it. That's Old Testament stuff. Well, they don't like you to read that Isaiah stuff because it tells you how to get saved. So if you're a Jew out there, get into the book of Isaiah. Do some thinking on your own. Because there it is. Christ is proclaimed. All right, rather than becoming the long-awaited promised kingdom for Israel, their rejection resulted in the insertion of what? The church age. The intercalation of what? The church age. When, or excuse me, where? Between two Jewish ages. Most people don't understand that. Church age. Notice that intercalation chart. You have the kingdom age. That's a Jewish age. You have the tribulation. That's a Jewish age. Those are the seven years that God owes the Jew. And that's what Daniel was talking about in Daniel chapter 24. Excuse me, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24, 25, 26, and 27. And we'll see more of that uh, shortly. (coughs) Pardon me. So there is a special irony here for Israel. It was in 539 B.C. that Daniel was given one of the world's most spectacular prophecies concerning the timing of the first Palm Sunday. Oh my gosh. Judah, by circa 600, had become an idolatrous nation. A nation which had been warned time and time again to repent and return to Jehovah God. Judah was ripe for God's discipline. In fact, the fifth cycle was about to fall upon the apostate southern kingdom. The fifth cycle meaning punishment for failure to heed the word of God, to accept that which God provides all right, the northern kingdom, you remember, had already been, uh, they had already fallen under the fifth cycle of this one, when in 721 B.C., roughly, Assyria conquered them. And that's how we got, of course, half Jew, half, half a Gentile, and uh, the uh, what we might call a half-breed, as, as the Lone Ranger and Tonto used to say all the time. You know, every time Tonto went to town, he came back and somebody had beaten him up because they were prejudiced. They were racist against Indians. Tonto would come back and say, Oh, Kimosabi, they hit me here, they hit me there. And Lone Ranger would say, Come here, Silver. Tonto, get Scout. Let's saddle up and go to town. And then Lone Ranger would go to town. He would kick royally rear end for messing with his Indian. But that's another story. So I won't go into that one anymore. Okay. You, if you hadn't, you know, if you didn't follow the Lone Ranger, then you were too old or too young or too, I don't know. All right. Here we go. Judah by 600 then had become an idolatrous nation, a nation which had been warned time and time again to repent and return to Jehovah God. Judah was ripe for God's discipline again and ready for the fifth cycle. Now in 606, Babylon was, well, they actually advanced on poor old Israel. Uh, 606, 597, and 586. 586 being the ultimate. Uh, and uh, they brought a powerful army in there. And it was good old Jeremiah who kept telling them, you know, open the gate and let them in. And they said, wow, that's stupid. Now, it may be stupid, but God told me to tell you that. Open the gate. And God said, he's going to kick your royal ear, rear in if you don't accept him and Wave at him, thank him for coming, give him the old wave, you know, like the king and the queen do. Uh, and they didn't, and as a result, they suffered and suffered and suffered. So as a result, the Judas continued rebellion, further defeat and hostage taking occurred in 597 and then later in 586. 
And again, the attack in 586 resulted in the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and Solomon's temple. It wouldn't be completed. The new temple wouldn't be there until later on in 516. All right, by 586, the diaspora was complete. Men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been taken to hostage, taken hostage, and they served in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, they prospered because they were, they were wise. They said, okay, it's over. We lost the election. Uh, it's over. And we didn't do what we were supposed to do. So sit down, shut up, and get with the program. And they got with the program, and they rose to the top. And they rose to the top. All right, now then, 539, Daniel read from the 25th chapter of Jeremiah. He was writing, of course, uh, wrote the book in that 600, 600 period. It was from Jeremiah. He learned the diaspora would last 70 years. Oh, I'd like to have been there when he did that. See, if you take a good look at 606 and you, and you take away 70 years, he's got to think, ooh, Word of God is always correct. No question about it. We're not going to argue about it. So we're about three years away from going back. I guess. I wonder. I'm going to confirm that with God. So in the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel, he goes, he begins to pray. Oh, he laid it on the Lord. He told him, he said, you know, here's the deal. We're over here in, in, in Nebuchadnezzar's land in Babylon, the Chaldean, uh, Empire, and uh, it's about time for us to go back. So tell me, when are we going to go back? It's getting close. And so all of a sudden, here he come now. Who's coming? Gabriel. Gabriel says to him, you know, I was on my way sometime. It took me a while to get here, Daniel, but uh, that gum old demon that's on the Persian king's shoulder stopped me and I had to holler for Michael. I said, Michael, 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 I gotta go see my friend Daniel down there. And Michael came down and he told that, that, that demon that was on the shoulder of old Persian king, he said, get off. Get out of here. I don't know if he did, I don't know what happened. You don't know what happened. We don't know what happened. I suspect he just bopped him good, you know. Gave him a couple of good shots and he ran. Turned tail and ran. And then uh, Gabriel was able to come and to tell uh, Daniel, okay, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, 25, 26, and 27. See, those wonderful passages. They're part of the 70th week. So you can read about the 70th week if you go to the internet, westbankbiblechurch.com, you know. And you can go to Pastor Mary's study books and go down the list and find the 70th week. All right, so he read, and the old prophet put a pencil to 606 minus 539, and he got to 67 years. And then he went back, when we, excuse me, I gotta slow down. And when he went back to 606, it was 70 years. So by his calculations, it's time. And the prayer can be found in Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Now, the prophet only wanted to know if his calculations were correct. Gabriel was sent to answer his prayer and much more. Daniel was astonished at his answer. You know, he said, I just wanted to ask you what time it was and you told me how to build the watch. You know, my goodness. Uh, I'll give you all kinds of information about it. And then there's that chart, that 70th week chart. And that's where it portrays the... the, uh, Marvelous, marvelous prophecy that I don't think there's a greater prophecy other than, of course, the prophecy of the Lord, you know, taking care of our sins, etc. But it tells you that from one commandment, you can see a commandment to rebuild Jerusalem. And there's one uh, little number there that needs to be put in there, and that's a seven, where it says March 14th, 445 BC. I like to put a seven in there on my chart just to remind me. That you remember the seven is Shabuah, it just means seven. And uh, you multiply seven times seven, and that gives you the 45 years that it took to rebuild the city. So you have to add that in. But this is in a book written by Chuck Missler. But it tells you from March the 14th, 445 BC, from the decree of Artaxerxes Longomanus to go back and rebuild the city. Now that's the only time they've ever been told to rebuild the city. <laughs> 
They've never been told that ever to rebuild the city. So that's the one time. So we know you start there. Now you want to go forward 173,880 days. And if you do, you get to roughly April 6, 32 A.D. uh, And you find the time that Christ came and offered his kingdom on the first Palm Sunday. Now there is a remarkable prophecy. So what's that little interval there that says seven? That's the church age. I'm sorry, excuse me. That interval with the question mark is the church age. I looked down there and saw a question mark and saw seven. That's because, uh, you know, they say that this, uh, I don't know if uh, those of you, many in our church, by the way, have had the shingles. It's amazing. Kim's had it. The judges had it. The Carolinas had it. Uh, Bruce, I think Bruce has had it. Uh, my son-in-law had had it and uh, it can't affect your eyes, you know, so you have to be careful there. If it gets in your eyes, it can blind you. It can cause glaucoma. It's going to have to hurry for me. I've already got glaucoma, don't you, Judy? So anyway, it's uh, uh, things that we have to take care of down here. But this chart tells us that about that miracle. So we've got, and I'm going to read it to you here, the expanded translation in a minute, but the interval with the question mark is, of course, the church age. All right, and then we have, of course, the 70th week, which is the seven years God owes the Jew. Seven years God owes the Jew. Now let me read you the narrative, okay? The narrative. All right, and this is an expanded translation. Tom and I worked on this last night till 10 o'clock, and to get it just right, sometimes uh, I'll get it done and think, "Ah, that's not good enough, you know, that's not good enough. So we... We got, uh, I had pulled her off a blacklist and, uh, said, uh, honey, get over here. We got to work this. <laughs> so we worked it. And we worked it. And here we go. All right. Beginning now in Daniel chapter nine, verse 24. Daniel and I have heard your prayers. Now, for those of you who say, well, blacklist wasn't on, my wife's got a recorder. She watches whatever she wants to. That's because she's so pretty. All right, let's go. Daniel and I have heard your prayer. 490 years have been cut out for your people. I have not forgotten my beloved Israel. It is within this 490 year period that I will establish the temple, make an end of sins, bring in everlasting righteousness, and fulfill the messianic promise by establishing the Messiah as Israel's king. I want you to understand that from the commandment to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, one time only, which will occur only once, and that on the first of Nisan B.C. 445, from that day until the Messiah arrives in Jerusalem on the first Palm Sunday, shall be 483 years to the day. And that's also 173,688 days. All right, the streets of Jerusalem and its inner and outer walls shall be restored. That's what Nehemiah did. Even in dangerous times, Nehemiah and his people will work on the city walls with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other, or a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other, and a spear. All right, now, after 434 years, actually, we know quite specifically that it was on the first Wednesday following the first Palm Sunday, the Messiah will be crucified. But not on behalf of himself, but rather as a substitute for the sins of the world. Later, the Romans, as a precursor, the Antichrist will come and destroy the city and the temple. The traumatic destruction in AD 70 is but a representation of what the future would hold for Israel. The destruction of the temple and the city by Titus in AD, that's King Titus, by AD 70 will begin on an uncertain time gap in the 490 year period. Many will later style it the church age. So after the removal of the church from the planet, the Antichrist will make a treaty with Israel and both peace and freedom to worship Jehovah God in a restored temple will be guaranteed. Be aware, however, that in the middle of that seven-year period, the Antichrist will break that treaty and all worship will cease. A statue of the Antichrist will be set up in the false temple and the people will be required to worship the Antichrist as their Messiah. So this sad state will continue until God himself casts both the first beast and the second beast into the lake of fire. Be aware, however, that in the middle of that seven-year period, the Antichrist will break that tree and all worship will cease. A statue of the Antichrist will be set up in the false temple and people will be required to worship the Antichrist as their Messiah. 
This sad state will continue until God Himself casts both the first beast and the second beast into the lake of fire. So these scriptures represent a remarkable prophecy for both Israel and the church with reference to Palm Sunday. As we have seen, this prophecy is fulfilled to the letter. So he returned on, uh, of course, that first Palm Sunday, and then by Wednesday he was crucified on the cross, and then by Israel's, again, Saturday, our Sunday, he was raised from the dead. And uh, goes to sit at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. His spirit going one place, his body in the grave, and his soul going to another place. And we've been all over that before. Charts that I've shown, etc. So uh, for more information, I recommend you go to westbankbiblechurch.com and click on uh, Pastor Mary's study books. Uh, with the doctrine of Palm Sunday. And now if you are still thirsty for more information, click on Pastor Mary's study book entitled Doctrine of the 70th Week. Alright, so much for that particular lesson. Now you have another lesson, uh, which is part 7 of Paul the Apostle. So we celebrate Palm Sunday, and I did not want to have a lesson on Palm Sunday without mentioning Palm Sunday. Uh, but... Uh, we're not going to get too far into part seven. I'm sorry, part eight. Again, my eyes are giving me a little trouble up here today. Part eight, uh, Paul the Apostle. All right, earlier we completed the study of the third missionary journey, and when the clock told 11.30, we were studying the trials of Paul. And I uh, haven't put the trials of Paul yet up on the podcast, but I'm going to do that. And that's where I go through all of the trials of Paul, even going into Rome, and shows who said what, when, and where, and where it was held. All right, that has been done, but I just hadn't had time. Uh, you have to leave a little time for suffering, you know, but uh, hadn't gotten to that yet. All right, enough of that. I want to review, and then we're going to learn new material on page three. So here we go. After the third missionary journey, Paul returns to Jerusalem. Now, this is review, so I may go rather rapidly. All right, after the third missionary journey, Paul returns to Jerusalem in hopes of gaining the hearts and minds of many Jewish converts living in the city. All right, Paul spends several days in the temple participating in a purification route. Let's go right. The purpose of which being to assure his Jewish brethren that he is not a heretic. You remember we went all over that. We went over Dr. Paul's approbation lusts. Alright, the Jews at Jerusalem are, however, implacable and outraged, thinking that Paul had taught the Jews of Asia Minor to turn away from Moses. An angry mob gathers outside the temple to confront Paul. On the steps of the temple, Paul is physically accosted. Paul is rescued by a platoon of Roman soldiers, Acts 21, 31-36. Paul's first defense, therefore, is before an unruly mob. First on the steps of the temple, and later from the steps of Fort Antonia, or Mark Anthony Barracks. It's right next door. Paul is mistaken for an earlier Egyptian heretic. And uh, the guard mentions that heretic. Aren't you that guy? No, no. Acts 21, 38, 340. Paul witnesses to the angry gathering by telling of his conversion experience. Acts 22, 2 through 21. All seems well until he mentions the book of, in the gospel uh, that he took. Excuse me. He mentions that he had taken the gospel to the Jew. Then all hell breaks loose. Acts twenty two twenty two. Paul is saved from the crowd by the Roman soldiers who take him into custody. Paul declares himself a Roman citizen and the centurion becomes concerned that he is bound to Roman without cause. Acts twenty two twenty five through twenty nine. Paul is brought before the Sanhedrin, Acts twenty two thirty through twenty three five. Paul decides to divide the Sanhedrin by letting them know that he was a Pharisee and was on trial because he believed in the resurrection. So this splits the Sanhedrin. Acts 23, 6-7. The Jews were so divided they became violent. Soon Paul's life was in jeopardy. So the Roman officer ordered his men to take Paul into the fort. The Lord visits and comforts Paul in a night vision. Paul is removed from Jerusalem under armed guard because a plot to kill Paul is discovered. 
and uh, that was by his nephew. As a result, Paul is taken to Caesarea, Acts 23, 12 through 35. All right, at Caesarea, which is about mid-latitude in the Holy Land, and uh, on the western shore, where it was at that time a port city. And uh, many of the kings or judges would stay in Jerusalem one time, then they would go to their home place, and then they would go to Caesarea. It was a nice place to visit. So Felix was the procurator of Judea under Claudius, and of course, uh, it's his first appearance, Acts 23, 25-35. Uh, and Tacitus has a classic uh, writing about old uh, Felix. He said he thought he could do any evil act with impunity, and he exercised the power of a king and the spirit of a slave. I like that. It's quite poetic, isn't it? All right, Felix listened to Paul's defense and postponed any decision pending more information from the Roman commander. Uh, Felix then remands Paul to Herod's uh, judgment hall to await the accusers. Felix then sends for Ananias, the chief priest. He's another dandy. Ananias arrives from Jerusalem with his chief prosecutor, a guy by the name of Tertullus, who accuses Paul of disturbing the quietude, profaning the temple, and inciting sedition among the Jews throughout the world. Acts 24, 1-9. Paul defends himself before Felix. Well, he first denies the charges. He makes the point that there was not sufficient time to have done all concerning with which he was charged. He admits raising the question of the resurrection, Acts twenty four seventeen through 23. I'm always reminded when I read that, what people say about my life. Uh, if Jerry Merritt had done everything that he says he has done, he'd be 150 years old. All right, here we go. Paul defends himself before Felix then. All right, the, Paul witnesses to Felix and Drusilla, the wife of Felix. So he brought his lady in, Acts 24, 24 through 26. So he's placed in a Caesarean prison. All right. Felix was recalled. We're now going to basically start new material. So I'll slow down. You've heard all that. And as is my custom, I gave you a review and I gave you the scriptures, just the addresses, because I read the scriptures to you the week before. All right. Felix was recalled to Rome by the emperor Nero under accusation by the Jews of bad administration. Cosius Festus succeeded him as procurator of Judea in circa A.D. 60. Though Felix knew that justice required Paul's dismissal, he left him in prison because he saw that he could thereby ingratiate himself with the Jews. Acts 24.27 says, But after two years, Festus came into Felix's room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. All right, uh, he came into his courtroom, if you will. While this two-year incarceration must have been very trying on Paul, one redeeming feature was that throughout this entire time, Luke was with the apostle. And I'm sure Luke used the time to gather information about the life of Christ and the events of the life so that he could uh, make good notes and be able to write the book of Luke and also the gospel of Acts. I mean, the book of Acts. All right, Festus soon after taking over from Felix goes to Jerusalem where he parties for several days with the Jewish leadership and agrees to a second trial. Acts 25, 1 through 5, three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus, as a favor to them, to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing to ambush and to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. So let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there, if he has anything, he done anything wrong. All right, Paul is again tried, but this time before Festus, he will at this time appeal to Caesar, Acts 25, 6 through 9. Now, after spending uh, eight or ten days with the Jews at Jerusalem, he went to Caesarea. And the next day, he convened the court. And again, we're talking about the judge. And ordered that Paul be brought before him. Again, Acts uh, 25, 7, 8, and 9. (coughs) Excuse me. 
When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. So then Paul made his defense, I have nothing wrong, done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. So Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Well, you know he's going to say no. All right, Festus could find no offense against Paul, but wanted to please the Jews. Therefore, he orders that Paul be returned to Jerusalem to be judged before the Sanhedrin. Paul refuses and demands he be sent to Caesar. Acts 25, 10 through 12. All right, now let's look at verses 10, 11, and 12. Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourselves know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving of death, oh, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Oh, boy. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. Okay, to Caesar you will go. So about this time, King Agrippa and his sister and wife, Berenice, or Bernice, arrive at Caesarea, Acts 25.13. A few days later, King Agrippa II and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Before Paul could be sent to Rome, a native king, Agrippa. Boy, they got more kings and procurators than you can imagine. Agrippa came to Caesarea to greet Festus as the new Roman governor. Herod Agrippa II was the son of the first persecutor of the church. That would be his father, Agrippa I. He was infamous for the execution of James and the imprisonment of Peter. So when Agrippa I died, his kingdom was not bestowed upon his son, but was placed under Roman governors. So in AD 53, Agrippa II was given the rulership over a very small area there called Abilene. All right, later certain towns in Galilee, Galilee and Perea were added to his domain. All right, in addition, he was entrusted with the important function of supervising the temple treasury in Jerusalem. Oh, that, that would get him a lot of prestige. That's a very important job in the swamp. So he was also given the responsibility of appointing the high priest. This gave him significant influence in Jewish affairs and his interests thus overlapped with those of Festus. All right, Bernice, sister of Herod, had been the wife of an uncle, Herod of Chalcis. Uh, her husband had died and she was now living with her brother in Caesarea Philippi. Now many historians, it's not a fact, I treat it as a fact here, but many historians believe she was living in an incestuous relationship with her brother Agrippa II. There's some, some church history that teach us that. All right, Festus and King Agrippa review Paul's case. Agrippa agrees to hear Paul, Acts 25, 14 through 22. All right, now I'm going to read. It's quite lengthy, so there we go. We'll go a little, little faster here. All right, since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over any man before he has faced his accusers and has had opportunity to defend himself against their charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes the two men had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. (laughs) Festus was at a loss, however, to investigate such matters. So I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on the charges. When Paul made his appeal uh, to be held over for... The emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself, he replied. Oh my goodness, here we go again. Tomorrow you will hear him. Poor old Paul. Paul defends himself before King Agrippa. 
Paul first reviews his personal history and has his experience on the road to Damascus. Uh, of course, it was uh, in Christ. Uh, it's quite clear. And I'm going to read uh, Acts chapter 26, verse 1. Uh, actually, that's awfully long. Uh, I'm probably going to stop right there. Uh, and we'll pick up with that verse, or part of it anyway. And then we're, we're going to get to a very interesting story of the trip. If you look on page uh, 70, you can look ahead a little bit if you'd like. You'll see the trip, how it went. You see all those squiggly lines there between uh, Greece and Italy down in the Mediterranean. That's the big storm. And they end up landing on an island named Melita, which is now Malta. And uh, I say it's now Malta. I think they've even changed the name again. Again. But it was Malta when Stalin and Roosevelt and Churchill met in the middle of the Mediterranean because they didn't want the Germans to find out where they were. So they felt they picked that little island and they began to plan how are we going to kick the Nazis in the tail for messing with uh, America. If you study, we often think, well, America came to the aid of the Jew. America didn't come to the aid of the Jew. America waited. America waited. America waited. Just as though they said, kill them all. You know, and there was only one guy in the administration who pushed and pushed and pushed and spent. They're killing all the Jews. They're killing all the Jews. We need to do something, Franklin. We need to do something. And, uh, and of course, also Woodrow Wilson and others, but uh, Roosevelt, of course. But that's an interesting story, you know. Very interesting story. And another part of the started history. Uh, that uh, America saved the Jews. America got into the war because Japan, thank goodness, attacked us. And then we began to help the Jew. But uh, that's just a little history lesson. And I know we're not here for history lessons, so let's close our out with, the, first of all, invitation. Uh, I think most people know they're sinners, but uh, I guarantee you they will all ultimately know in time because God the Holy Spirit will teach them. It's kind of a natural thing, you know. Whoops, I did something wrong. Whoops, wish I hadn't done that. Whoops. But that's not quite the issue. The issue is you have a sin nature and there's nothing you can do about it except believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. So with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I want to know, I want you to know if you're an unbeliever out there, that the scripture reveals very clearly all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's all by grace. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So whatever you are doing, wherever you might be, you can simply tell God the Father, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a decision. And you know what this decision is? It's to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth upon Him. Now I'm going to pause for just a moment and give opportunity for you to believe and be Delivered from everlasting punishment. And now for our benediction. Father, thank you for permitting us to be here. Now uh, I would ask that God the Holy Spirit would take that which I have presented, make it real, in order that we might grow in your wonderful grace and become more like our Lord and Savior. 
even Jesus the Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen.